0: I went to Wall Street, I had my career, and then I ended up leaving, starting my own investing thing and doing all these entrepreneurial things. And I wrote a book proposal called The 10% Entrepreneur and we tried to get it published and we got rejected 33 times and getting frustrated. And then I got a call from a reporter who said, I'm writing an article about the history of FOMO. I traced it to you. He wrote the article, came out in Boston Magazine and went viral. And then I had a book deal a week later. I am unwilling to give up
1: We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I am so excited to have my next guest here. This is Patrick McGinnis. He is not only a fellow podcaster – you definitely have to check out his podcast, which I was recently on – but also the author of an incredible book, a new book called The Fear of Missing Out – practical decision making in a world of overwhelming choice but what i didn't realize until i actually jumped into this book was that this guy like coined the term fomo and as i shared with him it is it's my connection with like my gen z crowd that hangs out at my house it's like fomo is is it and here he is, Mr. Patrick, for uh, right in front of us to talk to us a little bit more about it. But the other thing about Patrick that I've really uh, admired as I uh, learned a little bit more about his journey is that he was doing something totally different than what he's doing today. And uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that because I think there's so many people listening to this who are trying to figure out. What do they want to do when they grow up? And is there something wrong with me that I don't really want to be doing what I'm successful at? And and so that was like a key thing that I got from reading a little bit more about Patrick and meeting Patrick. So, welcome,
0: Kara. It's so good to be here. Thank you
1: for having me. Absolutely. So, take us back to you know wherever you want to start, really. Like when you, <laughs> I mean, where'd you grow up? I'm
0: from Maine. I'm from a small town in Maine. It's called Sanford. Twenty thousand people four stoplights. And then I went off to college in DC at Georgetown, but that was a big leap. I never, you know, it wasn't something I thought I would do. And, but it was, it was, I wanted to work in the government. And so I thought I'd go to Georgetown and my dream was to be a trade negotiator. Oh, that's a sexy dream right there.
1: Very a trade (laughs) negotiator. And how did you like get that idea?
0: Well, I knew I I wanted to work in the government at that time. That was my, you know, I I was really a fan of like, I wanted to work on the Hill. And then I took all these classes in international economics and I fell in love with the idea of working on sort of negotiating trade agreements because I'd studied it in school and it it just seemed like a fun idea. Um, Didn't think about the fact that it could have been boring and take years, but, but that's where my head was at when I was in college.
1: That's wild. Yeah. And so you graduated and where'd you go from there?
0: FOMO drew me to <laughs> Wall Street. So, so I saw these friends of mine that were going to Wall Street and I remember hearing the salaries. The starting salary was more than my dad made. And so I didn't know what investment banking was, but I knew that I wanted to make a lot of money. And so I went to Latin American investment banking at uh, JPMorgan Chase.
1: Very interesting. And so were you actually down in Latin America? Did you spend some time living down there?
0: So I was between New York and Argentina. And then after about a year of that, I was the worst investment banker in the history of investment (laughs) banking. But I didn't know what we did. So I- was about to leave and do a Fulbright and then my boss said well we have this job in the venture capital group why don't you go interview to do that and I interviewed and I started doing venture capital in Latin America investing in the first wave of startups in the region and that's kind of where I found my stride and I lived in Brazil and spent like lived on a plane kind of like I know you, when we had our your interview on my show you said that the people at the at the at the gate knew you and they would be like hey Cara and all and, the
1: United and, Pilots yeah exactly
0: yeah. I was like that guy I knew the, the crew on the New york Sao Paulo flight, but I loved it, and um, it was a fantastic way to to kind of cut my teeth in in business.
1: That's awesome. And then, how did you decide to come back? And so, you're living in New York now.
0: Yeah, I'm in New York, and nine uh, eleven, just like in your story. I, I you know, mm-hmm. as I read in your book, nine eleven hit, and it freaked me out, and then we had the tech bubble imploded, and I just thought to myself, I had just taken the GMAT on nine ten. And so I said, I'm going to apply to business school. I applied, um, applied to two schools, Harvard and Wharton. And I'd never met anybody who'd gone to the, I mean, this was like way outside of what I thought was possible for me, but I, I got into both and I just wanted to get the heck out of New York and go somewhere safe and away from the realities of the economy and, 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 and living in New York after 9-11. So I went up to Boston and, and enrolled at Harvard Business School and that was it. That was, that was part of the, that was, you know, the FOMO treadmill that I was living on at that time.
1: And did you want to get out? Of, I, I've met so many people and have many friends who were in finance and then just decided I want to do something a little bit different. And then like, that's kind of why they went to business school. Did you think you'd go back to finance after business school? Yeah. How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? to subscribe for just $0.50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just $0.50 cents per week for your first year. Yes, I, I I I saw
0: myself as like a private equity person and that was gonna be my path. And in fact, in business school, I fell in with the private equity crowd and I, I had the ski house. And of the 25 people in the ski house, like 22 were in private equity. So it was a really big part of my personality. And um, which I like, and I look back and I'm like, what's so cool about private equity? Nothing really. But at the time, it was so, it was a big part of my identity because I think it was like the first time I'd ever been successful and been financially independent and able to do what the heck I wanted. So it was a big part of what I wanted to be.
1: That's wild. What what did you focus on? What was sort of your categories that you, really focused on so I was
0: focused more regionally I was in Latin America I had done sort of venture we did both v c and tech so i did I was a VC and private equity so I'd done early stage sort of tech investing and like the eBay of Latin America and the eTrade of Latin America all these sort of like hybrid models we brought from the u s but then i i was I was on the board of the Argentina's number one ice cream chain Fredo if you've been oh. to buenos Aires. i was uh I did cable investing I did all kinds of crazy stuff so I was I was kind of a generalist. Um, and I really liked that about it. I didn't want to be a specialist.
1: That's wild. Did you live in Buenos Aires? I or? did,
0: yeah. I was I was between yeah. New York, Buenos Aires, and Sao Paulo.
1: Oh, such a beautiful, beautiful place. No, it's heaven. So I want to go back. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's such a beautiful place. I wish I could have spent more time down there. I've I've been there a little bit, but I I would too. I'd love to go down there. We went to Chile as well and roamed around that area. And it was just, it was awesome. So what was the moment that you just decided to get out of private equity then? I mean, what was sort of your, was there one specific incident or were you just like, what am I doing here?
0: I didn't quit private equity. Private equity quit me is what happened. Oh. You know, in like, it's like, it's kind of like when you're, you're growing up and you have that crush on that, that girl and you like, ask her out every year. And she says no every year. And you're like, but next year. And then one day, like you read in the paper, she got married and you're like, well, that's just not going to happen for me. So I went back to private equity after business school in the US in a domestic firm because Latin America was really out of favor and it was a place that I very much disliked I disliked the people I disliked our investments and um and but I was like well at least it's private equity and I had to drive to New Jersey every day from the West Village and I was in this office park next to a highway and on month 3 I took a nap under my desk and I was like this is terrible And then I switched to do international investing, um, investing all over the world. And I loved it. But unfortunately for me, I was working at AIG Capital Partners. And when AIG Hmm. blew up in 2008, I was like, okay, I've done, you know, everything I've done in private equity has eventually blown up. I got to rethink this. I can't keep going to places that blow up underneath me. And then I found that I have to reinvent myself over and over and again. I got to find a better way to build my career. And that was this moment, this crucible moment where I was like, listen, I come from a small town in Maine. I never thought I'd do any of the things I'm doing and I'm miserable. I work at a place that's bankrupt. Like I got to change this up or like next time it's like, it's no longer like I can't blame it on anybody but me. It's I'm making the choices. Right. So that was the moment in 2008, really
1: and then you just decided to just do individual investments and yeah. Yeah. And that was, and just do it. I think that it's super interesting. So I'm always so curious, like how people can kind of get off the train like that. But 2008, 2009 was obviously, you know, dicey for all, on (laughs) on a lot of levels for sure, but that's super cool. So FOMO, let's talk about FOMO and and your book. And, uh, and so, you know, tell everybody sort of the, how this ultimately came to be.
0: Yeah. So going back to when I left New York after 9-11, I, I came up to Boston and I was just, I started my my school there. And I was, I think like all of my classmates and I, we just been through a lot. 9-11 was super tough. And then we a lot of us worked with tech and we had lived through the tech crash when the NASDAQ fell from 5,000 to 1,300. And so I just seen like economic instability, just all kinds of instability in terms of terrorism and I just wanted... I wanted to sort of escape from that. And when I got to HBS, you know, that's probably the most choice rich environment I've ever mm-hmm. been in. There's so many things you can do, classes and parties and trips and, you know, internships, like, you know, socially, work-wise, it's just a lot. And and Harvard is this like incredible bubble full of really ambitious, hardcore, smart people who want to do everything. And I, I was just sort of like, I got two years to make the most of this. I'm gonna do everything. And so I did ever I went to Friday night, I would go to like seven parties. I would get up every morning at seven a.m. and go till after midnight. I was either um, constantly either sick, hungover, or getting sick, and um, <laughs> and so and so I started to realize though that that was not normal, and in fact, I felt anxiety about trying to do it all. And I felt a fear of missing out. So I started calling this fear of missing out. I shortened it to FOMO and I wrote an article in the school newspaper in the humor section in 2004, all about this crazy affliction that me and my classmates suffered from. And that was before social media, by the way, Mark Zuckerberg was across the river coding the first version of the Facebook.com while I was writing my FOMO article. Um, it looks like, you know, one of us did better than the other. Um, but it, it was incredible how, you know, I graduated. That article was super popular. It stayed popular. And then over time, slowly but surely, it became a word that was used beyond HBS and then made it into the dictionary in 2013.
1: That's it. And so it is. So it ended up making it into the dictionary. It took that long, though, to... Yeah. Because I feel like people were using it even before 2013, but that's how long. Did you actually apply to be in the dictionary or how does that work? No, you know, it's crazy. Like that-
0: what happened was I graduated. I went back to to New York and I, you know, I didn't really pay attention. I saw it in like, they would rerun my article and friends would talk about it, but it wasn't like a thing at all. And then, um, and then one day I get a call 10 years later from somebody telling me it's in the dictionary. And so I went back and reconstructed how it spread. And it was like slowly, but surely it was insane. I mean, there's, I, there I didn't do anything. It just the world made it happen.
1: Do you think there's anything that would have prevented you from like when you were in school? I mean, there's so much opportunity, right? Like, and that was probably part of the reason why you even went there, yeah. right? Like it's just, you know, you, not only the people, but you knew that there was going to be amazing classes that the, the called it like trips, like you said, the, you know, just being able to Um, hang out with people and talk about big things. Like, do you think that you've always been kind of attracted to that too, sort of, even before you coined that term? And do you think you would have, even knowing that it was called that, would you have, would it have changed you in any other way, in in some way to sort of know it?
0: I think, I think, and you're probably a lot like me. I think I've always been like that. I've always been Mm -hmm. an extrovert. I've always been competitive I remember in, you know, in high school, just like coming in with a plan. I'm going to, I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to win all, like I'm going to win in many different ways. That was like kind of my mindset it was very hardcore. I've chilled out a bit over time. So I think that's a natural, pre- when you have that natural mindset of wanting to do it all, you kind of fall a bit of a trap to that. The difference is, you know, we I, I didn't need a word for it because, I didn't have the internet. And I think the thing is now where it's so easy to compare yourself to other people and gain access to information that tells you what's going on outside of your immediate surrounding. That's when the FOMO, you know, knowing that there were so many things and being inside of a, like HBS is like living inside of a social network, right? You just get so much data about the things you could be doing that that really, it sort of supercharged this thing that existed within me and made it to the point where it was sort of like it took over my personality a little bit. And, and and it was not just me. It was the whole school. That's the culture of the school. And then it spread now with, with social media. I think it's something that anybody can feel, right? Because it's now we all have access to that kind of perception of choice and ability to compare ourselves to other people.
1: Yeah. No, I think, and I think social media, like you said, has just escalated it because it's not just about what you see in the physical world. It's also about what you see in the social world that is going on that is you know sometimes real sometimes not real especially in today's day and age I was a friend of mine posted a picture down in Mexico and I'm like are you in Cabo I'm so jealous she's like no I'm not in Cabo I'm like, you got a picture on social media, <laughs> right? Like I was like about to go get on a flight and come down and vi- and hang out with you because I'm so in need of, of a Mexico vacation right now. So it's uh, it's definitely you see uh, you see that happening around you, and I think I think social definitely ends up uh, escalating that significantly. So you're also the inventor of another word, fobo. Talk to us about that. I hadn't heard of FOBO.
0: Yeah. So FOBO was invented the same day, the same time. It was in the same article in 2004. And it never really, it only got sort of more renowned. It was written about in the New York Times like two years ago by Tim Herrera and the Smarter Living column. And I I was sitting there, my phone blows up and all my friends send me this article, like your word made it to the Times. And I was like, that's awesome. But I, I, I emailed Tim and I was like, hey, I don't know you, but... That's my word, and he was like, "Oh, that's cool," and interviewed me, and so I, th- then we started to see a little more traction. It's not in the dictionary though, and Fobo stands for fear of a better option, and it is the sensation you feel when you go on Netflix and you're like, "I want to watch something," but there's seven thousand options, or you know, when you go to the store. And you're trying to buy your Hint water and there's too many flavors. I don't know. Like I, I, my target near my house has only like three flavors. So it's not a problem for me. But it is this being overwhelmed with choice when you have perfectly acceptable things you can choose from. But there's so much choice that you become paralyzed. And rather than choose, you sort of just wait and wait for the, the, the sort of riskless choice to come along, which may never happen.
1: That's interesting. Do you think it creates procrastination to some extent? Like I, right. That you just say you get distracted by what could be.
0: Definitely. And, and it's like, it's, it's, it it, for example, you go on, I do this all the time, go on seamless to order some food in the house. There's 800 choices in my, in in New York city. Right. (laughs) So I'll be on there for 30 minutes and then I just give up and I'll just eat cereal. Right. Or Mm -hmm. think about how many times people bail on you when they make tentative plans, and then at the last minute, like they just disappear because something better came along. So it definitely causes procrastination. And what happens is, it's the little things. So when you procrastinate because of your phobo on something insignificant like what you're going to have for dinner, what you're also doing is pushing off dealing with the really important things in life. Because it's a lot more comfortable to procrastinate on something unimportant than to deal with the stuff that matters.
1: Yeah. No, it's absolutely true. I'm trying to remember his last name. Have you ever seen this TED Talk? Tim, God, what's his name? It's the best t- TED Talk, I think, out there. And I happened to be in the audience when he gave it, but it's uh, it's all about procrastination.
0: No, I have to see it.
1: Oh, it's, it's amazing. And he talks about even doing the TED Talk and he knew it was like got accepted. He had six months in order to do it. And then he's like, I got six months. And then all of a sudden, time <laughs> goes on. He's got all these deadlines to make for the TED Talk. And then suddenly, it's in two days that he's got to give the TED Talk. And so he said that the, the toughest thing for him is that there's always this monkey. And the monkey is like, saying, Hey, let's go. Like there's party, at you know, like we're going to go have beers. And I'm like, Oh, well, I got 48 hours. It's fine. Like everything's fine. And then, and then, uh, yeah, it's, it's always, he, he talks about the monkey and somebody and it's FOMO and he might even say FOMO in it, it along the way, but I, I think it's such a, it's a huge, uh, it, it, it's a huge issue for what he talks about. Like, why do people procrastinate? And I think a lot of it's, uh, I happen to be living with a few of those people who are constantly (laughs) like, you know, they'll find 18 ways to, uh, yeah. My son told me this morning, he was like, I, I was like, are you studying? And he was like, yeah, I got so much work to do. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's running out the door. I see him heading out in the car. I call him. I said, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I had to go get a bagel. (laughs) Like he had, like we have plenty of bagels in the house, but he's like, nope, got to go do it. I'm like, this is what I'm doing. I'm like, all right, okay, let's, let's do it. So I think it's, and he's my FOMO guy, definitely. But I think it's also um, a lot about procrastination too. So where does it work? Like, do you think, do you think that the profile is always like people who are um, overachievers or not really? Not necessarily
0: I think that, that that there is a competitive edge that can cause this, but I think nowadays really, if you look at it sort of as how it, how it has evolved, I think' we're, it's really about access to comparative information um, and also there's a real connection to people who aren't very happy. So the mm-hmm. more um, there's a tremendous amount of clinical psychology research that's been done on this topic. I, when I started researching it for my book, I couldn't believe it. I mean the amount of journal articles, that's out there. It's, it's I'm like, wh- yeah. I can't believe that yeah. you people are like with your PhDs are studying FOMO, but it's a real mental health issue because people who feel more depressed, spend more time on social media, feel more FOMO, start to sort de- of even feel more depressed. And so it's an interesting, um, it's, 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 it's become something that's, that's quite widespread. And I think the reality is that FOMO can be a positive feeling. And I, I think for competitive people in, in particular, it's like FOMO is kind of what's telling you what you might want to explore and what you might be interested mm-hmm. in. And so it can, you can respond to it well. And I think competitive people may do that. But if you look at the, the stats, like 56% of people feel FOMO when they're away from the social mm-hmm. network. So that is, that's just kind of an everybody kind of thing at this point.
1: So interesting, and how has being the man who created FOMO changed your life?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question. It's so funny because, so the, it was not something I had intended on happening to be to happen, sort sort of be a thing. And and so I, um, you know, I, I went to Wall Street, I had my career, and then I ended up leaving, starting my own investing thing, and doing all these entrepreneurial things. And I wrote a book proposal called The Ten Percent Entrepreneur, and we tried to get it published, and we got rejected thirty three times. And getting frustrated. My, me and my agent are like, you know, very, we're starting to fight even. Like we're fighting, which is not a good sign if you're fighting with your agent. And then I got a call from a reporter who said, I'm writing an article about the history of FOMO. I traced it to you. He wrote the article, came out in Boston Magazine. It went viral. And then I had a book deal a week later because Penguin saw it. And then, you know, you're off to, you know, you're off to the races. And so yeah. that was crazy. That was number one. Number two is just like, I will say, People are really nice to me. Like people, yeah. <laughs> people love FOMO, and when they hear about it, they always want to talk to me. Like it's it's really interesting. I, I was always kind of a you know friendly guy, but the amount of just like everybody wants to hear the story, and it's really nice. And I think it's a really wonderful way to connect with people. And so it's given me sort of a a really interesting way to do things I wouldn't have done before. Get into, you know, podcasting and get into media stuff and write another book. And so I have to say it's it's all positive. The only thing that annoys me is when people say like, well, how much money be made off of FOMO? And I'm like, well, did you trademark it? And sort of like, well, had I trademarked it, it would have never been famous. So, you know, it's kind of, it's not, you know, it's, it, it's kind of, you know, it's a chicken and an egg. I'm, I'm happy for everybody to use it for free.
1: So when do people like start, Calling it FOMO versus F O M O, like what? What is that? Like you know, there's certain words, right, that aren't really words, and people call it like you know they say the initials. Did you ever call it F O M O? No, you know,
0: you know why I think that. that. By the way, Kara, I've never heard that question. You're so so good,
1: but you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes you like you talk. Yeah, I like don't know, KPMG,
0: like, right? You wouldn't say the yeah, like couple. Or, I think it's because you can say FOMO and it's a word, right? Like it's easy to say, like if there was a D in there, it'd be like FDMO. Yeah, maybe. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. Maybe it, maybe it takes vowels in order to actually, I don't know. I got to think about that. Now you got me thinking, this will be my weekend uh, thinking. This is such a
0: good one. Oh man. I'm going to think about this too. H-I-N-T said a hint.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I mean, that, that's like another, that's. Yeah. That's a, that's another op-ed or something to talk about. Like how do you actually define whether or not somebody like spells out something, mm-hmm. a term that is anyway. So, but how, how did it happen? Like, how did you, like, you just, you just never actually like spelled it out. Do some people say it's FOMO and, no. try and screw with it? No, everybody always calls it FOMO. I didn't. And
0: when we, when we used it at school, I mean, this was like, So when I, the reason, you know, I came up with this and I started using it and it became wildly popular on campus and like, it became a word that was used all the time. And so when I wrote the article about it, you know, it just, I didn't even think about that, but I I just, yeah, it's never even been like an issue. It's just people call FOMO, FOBO or, or in, you know, in foreign languages, even like the Mexican with the Latin American versions coming out, it's like FOMO, miedo de, de, (laughs) So they even use it in Spanish, which is really new. Or in Indonesian, they used FOMO on the cover. I just got it. So it's insane.
1: That's hysterical. Do you have like Russian? Are they saying FOMO or no?
0: Yeah, I think so. So. Listen, the book's coming out in Russian any minute. So when I get the cover, I'll know for sure. But I've only heard it as FOMO. I just think it's easy to say. And people yeah. know what it means. It's that's the thing that this is the thing, Kara, that blew my mind. I travel a lot. I've been all over the place for work and stuff. And like I've I've been to very few places where people didn't hadn't heard of the expression FOMO. Even in like the Middle East or Asia, like it's they, they say it. It's, it. it's crazy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I believe it. And you have this podcast, as I mentioned, at the top of the hour, FOMO Sapiens, yeah. and which is a top business podcast distributed by Harvard Business Review. Um, that really focuses on the entrepreneurial stories, do you think entrepreneurs are more more likely to have fomo or or less likely or it just depends
0: I think that they probably are more likely and i 'll tell you why um, and you can validate me if i 'm right or wrong because entrepreneurs are looking to build and they 're always worried about their competitors and they 're worried about the market, and so you know there 's a lot of there 's a lot of pressure to Make sure you are keeping up with the competitors, and if somebody launches a product, then you have to launch that product and I think that that is a natural risk factor for entrepreneurs, but as we both know, focus and sticking to what you need to do is way better than spreading yourself too thin like you don't you know it 's like I think of like crystal Pepsi as a great example of fomo it 's like Pepsi, why are you trying to be sprite? you know do Pepsi and so or at least you know study it better and, and I think that A lot of entrepreneurs I know who 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 go too broad too early end up crashing.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree, and I think that it just speaks to. Actually, it's not just the entrepreneurs. Like, I feel like in our industry with Hint, we have retailers that are telling us like, oh, you should go and do uh, whatever CBD water. Oh, really?
0: Right, right, right. You know,
1: and and we're like, and maybe like, and but because they have FOMO. Right, they they like they think like oh it's out there and there's these other retail they're always focused on the other retailers, and which I think is fascinating, right? Like so it doesn't so you don't necessarily even have to have FOMO to be affected by FOMO. There's another article.
0: They're pushing the cost on you, which I never thought about. That's a really good point. They're making you bear the cost of their FOMO, which is which is a very interesting thing that, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Which is trial, right? Yeah. Like they don't know, like, they're just like, Oh, everybody's doing it. Like everybody's doing it. This like major retailer that they care about is launching it. And so they want us to like, go do it or, you know, or collagen, you know, collagen water, Oh you know, like all, all this. And maybe, right. I mean, we're just kind of like, I don't know, like we've, you know, doubled our company in the, in 2020 and you know we've tripled our direct-to-consumer business in 2020 I, we're kind of busy like you, you know, know in
0: the, con- right. the consumer is, the other thing is like i love sweet green okay sweet green georgetown guys shout out yeah. to, if you guys are listening love you and um i i'm a, I'm a really loyal customer sweet green but now i went in the app and i have a friend who's an investor and i said listen there's like so many choices now that i get a little overwhelmed You know, Mm -hmm. I used to love the simple elegance of like, there's nine things to choose from. And I get it, what they're doing, and I respect it. But like, it turns me off. I prefer you give me less choices, like the old apple, you know, when you could fit the entire product line on a table. There's an elegance to that.
1: I totally agree. And actually, it was interesting. I was on a Harvard, um, I didn't go to Harvard Business School, but I was on a Harvard Business School panel yesterday, and we were talking exactly about this and how... The theory was that it, that this is how the consumer's thinking about this too, that they don't actually want lots and lots of choices of brands. They may actually say that they do, but the reality is that, especially when they're living in a world that's like a little bit complicated, there will be these like, they, they'll look at their top brands and then their consistent brands and then they'll, you know, go and buy from them and that's it. Like, they don't want, like, the the ones that ultimately will lose are the ones that are not focused on, like, putting stakes in the ground around their brand, and they're, like, all over the place. And so, and I, I was thinking about that last night, that I think it it really is true, that I think it's it's uh the consumers, maybe they're a little bit FOMO, right, to to date, that they're trying a lot of things. But now, like, as we're coming off of a crazy 2020, 2021 is really about you know, this is what I want. This is what I need. And, um, and I'm not going to deal with these brands that are like just trying to grab at straws. And so anyway, it's fascinating kind of thought process along the way. So, so excited for this book and fear of missing out is just, I mean, it's an easy book to read. It's also just really, um, a lot of the history stuff behind it and lots of, you know, finding freedom from the fear of failure, I think is uh, also super, super fun. And you're just a, also just a great writer. Too, oh, thank Patrick. you. Seriously, Yeah, no, it's like, I, I, I've read so I'm just a constant reader. And I think like the th- thing that really bothers me is there's so many books that are published out there. And now today, so many even that are self published as well, where, like, it's just, the topic is great. But the the writing isn't very good. And so, anyway.
0: Well, I, it means a lot to me. I wrote every word. You know, I I actually love writing and, you know, I never thought I'd be able to write books. I, I never, it wasn't the cards for me. I, I just didn't know how I would do that. And so, I love writing. And, and so, I wrote this book. I went to Mexico City. I went for six weeks and I wrote every day. And it was awesome. I love it. And I was, and, you know, and I really enjoyed it when I just read the audiobook. I actually was like, wow, this is really good, you know? And so to feel proud of what you do in in, in life is something like, I think if if it stands the test of time and you can look at it a couple of years back and feel proud of it, like you always have that, right? And so that doesn't provoke FOMO or FOBO. It just provokes gratitude, I guess.
1: Yeah. No, I absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more. So fear of missing out, best place for people to buy it Best place,
0: Amazon, because who knows if your retailer is even open and you can get the audiobook. came out uh, November 17th. Uh, so it's available there as well. Written, if you like sound of this voice, you're going to love the fact that I read it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And he, he, Patrick did the audio recording, which is, um, I just think it's so key. I mm-hmm. think it's like more and more people I've talked to who didn't do that. That was like their one regret. So that they didn't actually do the audio version. I think a lot of people are going back in because it's just, I don't know. It's like in this world of maybe it's, I don't know if it's exactly termed authentic or not to, to, but it's just, I think more and more, it's just kind of weird. It's not it like, I mean, you want the guy who's like come up with the word FOMO reading his book. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's not easy. And, you know, even for those of us who have podcasts, like I definitely was, I practiced just to be, better because not, not everybody, you know, I think you gotta, you gotta kind of come in with ready to roll because it's harder than it looks. But if, if you work at it, you can make a great product. And I think it's better for everybody. It's a lot of fun.
1: That's awesome. And where do people find you, Patrick? Are you on social or?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm at uh, patrickmcginnis.com is my personal website. FOMO Sapiens is our is our podcast website. And at my website, you can find all my stuff. But uh, if you're on Instagram, Patrick J. McGinnis is my Instagram and Twitter is PJ McGinnis.
1: Awesome. Well, if you guys liked this podcast, give super high marks and subscribe and all that stuff. We're here every Monday and Wednesday at, with new Amazing guests, everything from CEOs and entrepreneurs to major disruptors and people who are doing amazing, fun stuff like FOMO. That you can actually say that you heard the guy who invented the word FOMO. So this is my, this will be my weekend uh, <laughs> conversation with all my Gen Zers that are around here. Not as many these days, but every once in a while, a few float by. So anyway, thanks so much, everybody.